We pray to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray through our services this morning that we would dedicate them to you and they would be received on high and pleasurable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of people have asked me if we're going to go back to the book of Romans. I promise you we are. We're in Romans chapter 8. One of the most wonderful proclamations of God's word in the whole of the scripture. We're certainly not going to stop before we finish with that chapter, but we will go on right through to chapter 16, and, and we'll get done with it someday. But not this day. Today, we'll turn to Luke chapter 5. When you're preaching on Romans, you really need the whole week to prepare. It's just not something you want to rush in and fit in between a lot of other concerns. And uh, we had a lot of other concerns these last couple of weeks. Um, So turn to Luke chapter 5. And this is a sermon I preached right about last year at this time. And it was from the Gospel Tales series that I did that you may remember. And uh, if not, maybe this sermon will remind you of of those days and, uh, and the stories of the Gospels. So let's turn to chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 11 and make my remarks based on that text. And so we read, Luke writes, So it was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it and fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for he and all who were with him, were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Our Father, in Jesus' name we ask you to unlock the deep secrets of this, your holy word for your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a familiar story. I would imagine, even if you're not biblically oriented, you probably would have heard it somewhere along the line here and there, um, how Jesus came in among a carpenter, among fishermen, and taught them how to fish. Actually, he did no such thing. He just did what God does. He provides for his people 
and uh, he asks you to follow his simple commands. And so we read, And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Where do you suppose the lake of Gennesaret is? Anyone know? It's the Sea of Galilee. It has a lot of names. I went into it once. Look that sermon up. Um, also called Sea of Tiberias, here called the Sea of Gennesaret. And so we have this wonderful account of the Lord preaching to the multitudes, and Luke tells us that they pressed about him to hear the word of God. We see these kinds of crowds in our day. I spoke of one this morning. You know, it's interesting that the last time I preached this sermon, last year about this time, there was a rock concert where a whole bunch of people died in a frenzy. Do you remember? Um, I forget who it was being not up to date on my rock idols of the moment, Um, but a bunch of people died, at least a handful of people died, and I used that to point out um, what happens when people get into crowds sometimes, you get very enthusiastic. And that was beginning to happen here. And they pressed about Jesus, and he rode out a little bit to ease up the... uh, pressure of the crowd. Now, I just mentioned to you that at some kind of a Halloween event in South Korea, 153 people were trampled to death. And so it's really quite amazing that I have those examples that are timely in both uh, iterations of of these words. But crowds get excited, and they can become dangerous. You've probably seen it at a Um, people press into movie theaters or it seems more at concert halls and there's just no calming them. And their fervor for their favorite music idol has them in a frenzy and the music and the show is designed to put them into this frenzy, you see. Those in the front press about the stage and the others press about those who press about the stage and the pressing gets too great and the panic sets in and claustrophobic anxiety disturbs the masses and they try to press toward the exits. Their idol has let them down. He's led them astray. Their fellow worshipers care nothing for their safety. They block their escape. They came for entertainment and excitement, friends, but they got something else. They got bodily injury. They did not come that day to die for their devotion. And there's no stopping that kind of pressure. And we see it happens over and over. I've seen such things. I've been in crowds like that. And though I've witnessed and even been part of this idle devotion in times of old... I must say that I've not witnessed such hysteria, such commitment from the masses to press toward the Lord to hear the word of God. That I have not seen. I've not seen that in my lifetime. Not in the way it's described here. And not anything to compare with what we see in the concert halls when such things happen. So where is this pressing today that the Bible speaks about? Where's the excitement to hear the sound of Jesus' voice? Where are the multitudes today? What are you willing to press toward in this, in this life? Is it, is it a rock band? How about a football team? Will you press in to see a game? How about a politician or a political rally? Those are things people press toward today. Um, maybe it's a protest against established policies. We, policies rather, we love to be great protesters today. Maybe it's a, um, to voice concerns about our own policies. There are so many things that people crowd about 
to attend today, but I see no great crowd pressing into heaven, storming the gates of heaven. There are no great crowds pressing into the churches to hear the word of God. Now, you may differ with me on that, but I suggest to you that some of the places where people press, it is not to hear the word of God at all. It seems to me that in those places of worship with the crowds are large, that very often they too are there for something other than the proclaimed word of God. Many would not press there at all if they could expect All they could expect, rather, is an exposition of the written word. Very often there are other things that crowds press in to see and hear. Even Jesus saw the disciples leave in droves. We talked about that last night. I remember talking about that with someone. Even Jesus saw them leave. He said, you must eat my body and drink my blood. And they thought, what a harsh saying. Who can understand it? And they followed him no more. And then the next line didn't say, but Jesus said, I'm sorry, please come back. I'll give you a lighter thing to think about. He didn't do that at all. Very often when the sayings get hard, even harsh, as the word of God does do, the book of Romans, the whole book of Romans is that the wrath of God is upon men, but there is an escape through the blood of Christ. That's the premise of the letter to the Romans. It's not all comfortable subjects that the Lord brings up. People are just as willing to press toward him until they hear something they disagree with or dislike, and then they leave. They thought that statement about eating his body and drinking his blood was really very gory and sort of cannibalistic and didn't stay around for the explanation. And then what did he do? Did he call them back? No, you know what he did? He went to his own disciples that stayed, and he said, why don't you go with them? You don't understand what I said either. And Peter said what we all must say to the Lord after the crowds have left that have disapproved of him. Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the text here says today, Luke tells us, they pressed about him to hear the word of God. They knew that's what they would get when they pressed about Christ. So he saw them leave in droves from time to time. Maybe it was too personal for them. Maybe it was a message on the ravages of sin in their lives or the specter of hell in their future. All of which are subjects that the Lord chose to speak on. One commentator, one of my favorite biographers today, Ian Murray, wrote this about this um, situation in the churches. He said, this is the disturbing legacy of the 1960s and 1970s. I'm guilty. I lived through those times. A generation brought up in guitars, choruses, and home group discussions. Educated, as one of them put it to me, not to use words with precision because the image is dominant, not the word. Boy, do we live in a land of images today. And so he writes, equipped not to handle doctrine, but rather to share. Excellent when it comes to providing religious music, drama, and art. Not so good when asked to preach and teach the faith. And so that's from his book, Evangelicalism Divided, which some of us passed around and read last year around this time. Make no mistake, friends, I'm not decrying good music. I'm a great lover of music and art. I'm not decrying worshipful hymnody. 
I really don't care what music they choose, by and large. Some of the ditties are a little silly and not doctrinally correct, and those I don't like. But we're certainly given the liberty in Christ to include all, all sorts of self-expression with regards to types of music, variety of instruments, so long as each is Christ-centered and not simply an opportunity to entertain. So I'm merely saying that the great saints were preachers. They were not song and dance men. John the Baptist was not a singer or a guitar player. The Apostle Peter was not a vaudeville act. Paul and Stephen and Philip the Evangelist were all preachers. The Lord was a preacher, not a dancer. And so when the crowds came to hear them, they expected to hear the word of God. When you came out to these guys, you came for a reason. And you knew what it was ahead of time. And that's why they came. That's why they pressed in toward the Lord. They did not want to miss a word of his. In fact, we might conclude that the things our society is willing to press toward, that they press toward hell and death and damnation. And I would tell you they do so blindly. Because if they were pressing toward Jesus, we would not see the nation and the state it is in today. We would not see them calling for euthanasia in Canada apart from parental consent. Our kids get upset, so let them kill themselves. It's insane. I mean, that's got to be one definition of insanity. So if we were pressing to hear the word of God, we would not see a nation in the state it is in today, and neither would they, but they silenced their preachers there. There's only certain things they can say now. Let me tell you a little something about the First Amendment, because you hear a lot of talk get said about it. Freedom of speech is not a right to right to say nice things. It's not the right to say agreeable things and things that don't hurt people's feelings. It's the right to do all those things. It's the right to say harsh things. It's the right to say subversive things about government. That's what it's about. It's the freedom to say things that people don't like. You don't need a law to tell people to say nice things. We all say nice things and we all want to hear them. If our society would press toward Christ and risk their own safety to hear the word of God and to preach it, we'd not be in such a state of confusion as we are about all the simple things of life. We would all know up from down. We would know right from wrong. We would know male from female, friends. I used to know what that was. I think I still do. We would know peace from violence. We would know truth from falsehood. We would know heaven from hell. So where's the great cloud of witnesses of which the writer of Hebrews speaks? He talks about the ancient saints pressing in toward heaven. And he writes, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, listen to this, friends, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. We have to go through some tough times, some difficult times, some offensive and hurtful times. But we do it because of the promise of the 
of salvation. We endure our crosses, despising the shame, as he did, for the joy that's set before us. We don't have to like the shame. We don't have to like the hard time. It wouldn't be hard if we liked it. It would be good if we liked it. I wish I could go into a trance like a Buddhist monk or a Hindu and just say, no, the, it's just a, I'm just a, a, you know, imagining that times are tough. They're not really tough. I'm not really starving. I'm not really dying. It's just a figment of my imagination. I'll just envision food and I'll be nourished. Sometimes I wish I could do that. But no, the Christian doesn't do that. The Christian looks life squarely in the eye and say, these are tough times, but I'll endure them for the sake of Christ because that's what he did for the joy that was set before him. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and will be there with him. Friends, there's no other reason for the Christian faith than that. Faith is for the hard times. That's why we have it. And so we see the Lord communing with commoners communing with tax collectors and sinners and fishers of fish and people like ourselves. And he was accused of all sorts of things. You know, there's only one person in the Scripture that was accused of being a drunkard, and that was Jesus. Do you realize that? They called him a drunkard and a wine-bibber because he hung out with the wrong people. He was happily going out to the commoners, to the fishermen, to the tax collectors, to the sinners, to the fishers of fish, to people like us, friends. I even heard he kept company with a few plumbers. You didn't know this, but the Romans invented plumbing. They were the first ones with uh, sewers, sewer system. Plumbers know that, little uh, plumber humor this morning. The multitudes are so numerous at this point in his ministry that no house can hold them. Jesus had to have meetings outside in the fields because no house could hold them. Um, you might remember there's a big hole in Peter's house. Remember the, the, the family of the paralytic came to the meeting and it was, it, it was in the house and it was so crowded they couldn't get in and they wanted to put their brother who was completely paralyzed before the Lord so they went up on the roof and dismantled the roof tiles and put the bed down in the center of the room. And they're up there lowering it down, and the guy's on the bed, he can't even move. And then what does he do? Jesus heals him, he picks up his bed, and he goes, Trump, trapes it out through the crowd. That was Peter's house, by the way. If you don't know that, go read it from the Gospel of Mark, and it's very clear that it was Peter's house. It was in Capernaum. Um, so there's a big hole in his roof. I got it here, Mark uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 4. And it cannot stand... Another onslaught of historical crowds. Peter's house has had enough. Graciously, the Lord decided to move out of there before they destroyed the place. And so the Lord goes out to the lake to preach. And why not? The whole of creation becomes, becomes for Jesus an opportunity for illustrating biblical truth. He's the creator, and he uses his creation to illustrate truth to us. Now, in terms of strict chronology, in other words, the order of events, I hold that Mark's gospel is the standard. And if that's true, then this passage which Luke has following the last passage, the last passage may actually have, uh, this passage may actually have preceded the last. And it seems that Matthew Henry agrees. And so he writes, the passage of the story fell in order of time before the two miracles we had in the close of the foregoing chapter. What were the two miracles? Well, Jesus went into the synagogue at Capernaum and, and uh, 
exorcised the demoniac. He cast the demon out of the man. Then he went to Peter's house, and lo and behold, Peter's mother-in-law was sick and dying on the bed, and Jesus raised her up. And uh, that happened before that happened before this in uh, in uh, in Luke's rendition, and uh, it is the opposite in Mark's. And um, Matthew Henry goes on, and it is the same with that which was more briefly related by Matthew and Mark of Christ calling Peter and Andrew to be fishers of men. But whichever version you would hear to, the meaning and the power of the passage is the same. And that is that Christ comes in among the common people and is content to have them physically close to him, pressing in on him in order that he may receive the benefit of his presence, of healing wonders, and of temporal abundance. He's happy when the people press in to hear the word of God. They come that they might hear a healing message or receive a healing touch. And so just as Jesus blesses us with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, he's also concerned about our earthly needs, that we might be made whole, that we might be healed, that our needs might be supplied even with superabundance, the nets were so big they almost burst. Paul wrote of this to the Corinthians where he said, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the first fruits, of, first fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. God wants to bless you not only to have wherewithal to serve him, but to be able to show hospitality to others. That's why he says he enriches you in everything with all liberality, and it causes thanksgiving through us to God. Just as those who were among the 5,000 who received the loaves and fishes in the wilderness were well supplied, so will the saints of God be well supplied in our day. We read of that in the scriptures from Mark 6.42. They all ate and were filled. It wasn't just uh, appetizers, apparently. It was the whole meal. They all ate and were filled. Um, Or as John wrote, they ate as much as they wanted. It was an all-you-can-eat deal out there in the wilderness. (laughs) And they filled both boats with fish, so they began to sink. That's the curse of abundance. You get too much. Open the windows of heaven that there'll not be room to contain it. Remember back in Exodus, Moses had to come out and tell the people, stop giving to the tabernacle. There's too much stuff. We have nowhere to store all the stuff that the generous faithful are bringing to the tabernacle for the priests to use. We've run out of forklifts and space to stack it. Can you see Moses as a worker in Home Depot blocking off the aisle you need? And he's down there stacking the stuff. Friends, the Lord Jesus is not stingy or scanty in his blessings. And if you want to say that you've not been blessed as these have, neither in recompense from your daily labors. In other words, maybe you don't think you make enough money. Or for abundance of provision, maybe you don't think you have enough stuff. I would ask you two questions. First, 
Do you suppose any of those among the multitudes that we read of in Scripture come home to full refrigerators of fresh food? The answer is no. And two, do you imagine that those who toiled all day in the first century toiled in well-heated, air-conditioned offices with lunchrooms and indoor plumbing? Did they return home after a long day's work to climate-controlled dwellings and every manner of modern convenience? Friends, there are the poor, and then there are the poor. And we are not the poor. If you're an American, you're among the top one-seventh of wealthy people in the world. So if your answer is no in both cases, and I think we know that it is, then you should realize that you and me and all of us live in a constant state of physical and material blessing that to the first century disciple would be superabundancy above all that they could ask or think. If they saw the way that we lived, they would say, why, are the, why do those people complain? So friends, it's the season of Thanksgiving, as it was last year at this time when I preached from the text. Let's remember this year that Thanksgiving is not just a day. You know, whenever I type Thanksgiving, like I did here, the spell check wants to give it a capital letter, as though it's not a word, it's a name. They think it's a day. Thanksgiving is a, a state of mind. It's a state of being. It's an act of giving thanks. It's not a holy day. It's a state of being. Thanksgiving in Scripture refers to prayer. Gratitude is the attitude of prayer. And if it's not, friends, then it should be. And so, yes, the Lord Jesus does require that we labor long in our vocations. He does require that we sit long under the preaching of the Word of God. But He's not a Lord who forgets our needs. He's a Lord who fulfills them. And I would say that even though we're a small body of believers in this local church, I would say that all who suffer lack or fall behind due to sickness or accident or layoffs or misfortunes, the local body is there to requite with compassion and the stores from our own personal blessings. And I would even ask of the body of Christ this morning that those of us who are doing well consider those who have stumbled for various reasons, consider a special offering in order that the brethren may be blessed to know that the body of Christ cares for its members and is cognizant of their needs. So verse 3, Luke writes, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Now remember, Simon is Peter. Peter is the nickname Jesus gave Simon. A lot of Simons in the New Testament. So he gets into Simon Peter's boat, and he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, these guys had fished all day, and they're like, now i got to hear this. So Luke writes elsewhere that in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he put out to sea a little bit. Relieve the pressure. So the Lord here is being pressed by the crowd. As I've noted, we've seen how exhilarated crowds can be dangerous things. They can press one another and trample one another to death, but the Lord has the remedy. He has the soon-to-be apostle row, row out a few yards in order to keep a safe distance, and then he begins to preach. All these things were necessary that the message of the Lord could be preached. Now, I've said before, I've spoken many times on the necessity of preaching. That was the Lord's stated purpose 
in coming to us. The Lord came to us to preach. It was the principal part of his earthly ministry. It's still the principal part of worship and evangelism. That will never change. I know that the 60s and 70s, as we've said earlier, as Ian Murray wrote, inured us to the sound of guitars and choruses and other such things. And I suppose all of these things are fine, and I appeal to our blessed liberty, liberty in Christ to adopt them for purposes of worship, for purposes of singing, making melody in our heart to the Lord, as we're commanded to do. But let me say that I remember when the symbols of the church were a pulpit and an open book. A pulpit and an open book. Where's our open book? For my illustration. Today, the symbols, look up a church online and what do you see? Do you see a pulpit and an open book? Probably not. You probably see guitar stands and microphones and a stage. So I'll stress yet again the indispensable practice of preaching to those who have been saved and to those who are yet to be saved. Remember the gospel The gospel preaching that saved you is the same gospel preaching that will equip you for service in Christ. Paul wrote of this very thing to the Ephesians, where he writes this, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro. The sign of, sign of a child is that he is unstable in his thinking. The sign of a mature Christian is he's not tossed about. He knows where he stands because he sat before the preaching and the teaching of the Lord. We're not to be, as Paul wrote, carried about with every wind of doctrine. What's the prevailing wind of doctrine today? As though doctrine is trendy, as though it changes with the times. Friends, it's the word that saves. It's the word that equips the saint. It's the word that brings knowledge of God. And so if you're saved, you have no business being content with your initial condition of soul. We speak about the weaker brother. Two types of Christians. Paul will get to it in Romans 14 when we get there. He speaks about the, the stronger brother and the weaker brother. But friends, the weaker brother isn't supposed to stay weak. He's supposed to become like the stronger brother. And you do that by being equipped by the word of God through the minister's who labor over the word of God, that they might equip us. That's their calling in life. And your calling is to increase your understanding of the things of God. It's to equip yourself in the knowledge of Christ. You were saved out of your sin. The word reached in and saved you where you were. You were saved into the body of Christ, and so the word is present there to equip you. How long? Till we all come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So if any of you gets up and walks out while I'm preaching the sermon today, I will assume that you are a perfect man. And you have reached the goal, and you no longer need to sit before the teaching of the Lord. And so it is 
to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the goal, friends. Disciple the nations. Friends, the church can't disciple the nations by not having church services. Now, I want to tell you something. I remember when I was young, in fact, I remember only in recent years, when Christmas came up, and I've said Christmas is not a holy day of obligation. There's no mention of Christmas or celebrating the Lord's birth or any of that. That's all, that all came from Romanism in the 4th century, and I've talked about that um, many times. But Christmas, because we have liberty in Christ to honor the nativity of our Lord, and it's a perfectly good thing, and I accept it, and most Reformed churches do. But so what churches do sometimes is have a special service on Christmas Day wherever it might land. I don't know what happened to that. Maybe that's still going on. But do you know there are churches even in the area who, because Christmas falls on Sunday this year, will have no service at all? Now that, I must tell you, I don't understand. And I think it's a misunderstanding of, first of all, the fourth commandment of God, right? Oh, well, we want people to have family time. Friends, you got to have your family time, but Sunday's the Lord's Day. It's not family day. And I hope you bring your family. But but we come together, not because we get to be together, but because we come before the Lord. And so these churches, I'm sorry to say, have it backwards. If you want a special service for Christmas, do it. But don't wipe out the weekly service. So when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Launch out into the deep. Boy, that would be a great sermon title. Launch out into the deep. Should have named it that. And so what did they do? They went to church. Friends, going to church is launching out into the deep. They went fishing for men. Have you noticed the Lord's not averse to risk-taking? We're so risk-averse today, like in almost everything we do. Read the 11th chapter of Hebrews and find out what the real saints lived through. It's not a pretty picture. People sawn in half, it says, lived in dens and caves, used skins for their clothing. They were driven from society. They didn't renounce their faith. Jesus is not averse to risk-taking. I remember when he had come in and he had riled up all the priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem, and his disciples came to him and said, don't go into the city today. They want to kill you in there. But what did he do? He went right back. He had something to fulfill, something that was more important than his immediate safety. Jesus knew where he was going when he headed to Calvary that day. He could have taken another road. He even told Pilate that. He said, I could be saved even now if I wanted to call the angels down on you. You think your power comes from you? It comes from me. (laughs) A little risk averse saying that to a first century governor um, with your life in his hands. Launch out into the deep. And he has in mind what? To bless the apostle with a great catch. But in order to get that great catch, Peter has to learn something first. He has to learn to take Christ at his word, to obey immediate commandments. Launch out into the deep. Now, friends, the Lord's not a fisherman per se. In fact, he's a carpenter. It says so in the scripture. He's a carpenter and he's a son of a carpenter. 
all right? Now, I'm a carpenter, and I don't take carpentry advice from fishermen, all right? And I don't know any fishermen that want to take fisherman advice from me, so I don't offer it. But in case you haven't noticed, I'm not the Lord. So the Lord can do these things. And so the fisherman does not instruct the carpenter, but the fisherman is being trained here. He's being tested. He's being prepared for another vocation, another aspect of the fisherman trade. He's going to continue to be a fisherman, but not for fish. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing. Some people read this and say, see, fishing's bad. But the fisher of fish must become a fisher of men, and I believe it's the same with us as it was with the apostle. Launch out into the deep, let down your net, and trap and ensnare all your unsuspecting relatives and friends. And guess what? Bring up a full net or not. But if you bring up a full net, you'll know that the Lord has blessed you. Know that the sinking of the boat is the sign that they've been blessed. I always found that so interesting. Though the boat is sinking, there are others about you to help you and other vessels to assist you in your struggle. And so he said he called those from the other vessel to come and help them. And so the Lord said to Simon, launch out. But Simon answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. In other words, really? Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. I don't know if he said it like that, but it seems to me he probably would have. I know one of you would have done it that way. You don't need to tell me what you might have said at this point in the exchange. I can guess. I know how most of us would have answered. No one would have blamed the apostle for going home before the meeting and certainly not for going home before launching out again this morning. He might have said, Lord, I've toiled all night. I'm too tired to come to the meeting. Perhaps another time when it's more convenient for me and I'm well-rested. I really need my rest, so I'm going home for now. He could have said that. Any of us would have said that, and any other brother would say, yeah, you're right, you didn't sleep all night, you go home and you rest. Jesus didn't say that at all. You've been all night, you caught nothing, we're going out again. So the disciple didn't say it, though. He took a risk. He gave it all after he had given it all, really. After he had a long night of toil and disappointment, but what's important here is that he did it at the instruction of the Lord. And so the Lord blessed the apostle in two ways. He blessed him with food and provision and success in business. That's one way. And he blessed him with an important life lesson and a wonderful illustration of discipleship. Launch out at my word. Go out into the deep let down your net, bring in the catch, for now you're fishes of fish, but I'm going to make you fishes of men. The fish you catch, the profit you make in this life may all be invested to bring in the eternal catch of souls. What do you think the Lord blessed you with your earthly provision? Same reason he blessed these men, that they could invest it in the eternal, in the eternal net full of men, not of fish. It begins with pressing toward the Lord. It proceeds from there by taking a risk, by launching out into the deep, even though you've known nothing but disappointment in your past attempts at evangelism. We've caught nothing. Go out again. Launch out. Take the risk. 
But a full catch yet awaits the faithful who will risk it again. I've toiled to no avail, but at your word I'll toil again. And so we read, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. Now, you know, I've been in business my whole life. I've seen so many times of lack in empty nets. I've had my share of despair of ever seeing success. 2008 comes to mind. <laughs> and if you'd like to know, I never really made much money in business. All I've seen, I, I've seen those times that I thought my nets would burst, and so even the blessing became a hardship. Too much was almost as bad as too little at some times. Isn't it funny how we can do that? All summer long, it's, oh, this heat. And as soon as the first cold day comes, I mean, that came quick. But in business, as in ministry, some problems are more desirable than other problems. I would rather be rich than poor. I'd rather have plenty than lack. But we learn to be content in all those things. Have you ever heard anyone say, yeah, but those are good problems to have? Have you ever heard that? Oh, i got so much work, I'm just going, going, going. Yeah, but those are good problems to have. Well, let me tell you this. I really believe that any failure I experienced or any scanty return on my investment of time and money and labor and sweat was because my business was not really my business. The Lord put me here to be a fisher of men, so I fish. I've probably really fished about five times in my life. I like the whole idea of fishing, but I, I just don't really do it. I don't sit on the dock of the bay watching the time roll away. <laughs> the Lord put me here to be a fisher of men, so I fish. And my nets aren't breaking, friends. They're not even full. There's too many empty chairs. I'd like to see the walls press out a little bit, right? I want to see the brethren all coming together to pull in a great catch and to see the word of God do its work in the hearts of men. And that can happen when all the partners launch out together to bring in the catch. Did you ever notice sometimes, you know, the, uh, the old faithful members of the church, they come right on time. And sometimes when someone's visiting, you know, or they're looking around for a new church, they give themselves a little more time because they don't know how long it takes to get there. So they get here early, and then you come in, and they're in your seat. <laughs> and you look over there, and you're like, now what do I do? <laughs> We're Baptists. We always sit in the same seats. Who are these interlopers? <laughs> and so I have to go over to them and say, get out of here. No, but it happens, and you guys know it happens, right? You come in and someone's in your seat. And, you know, newcomers will usually sit in the back. It's always amazing to me when you see a whole family visiting, sitting up front, in my seat. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Friends, don't worry, we have plenty of nets, plenty of chairs. We got double this amount of chairs. And our, and our occupancy permit says we can double the number of people in here. So let's do it. And if we go over that amount, let them catch us and make us put an addition on. <laughs> I must say to you, I've always been afraid of sinking. But in reality, I've never really come close. 
not in business, not in ministry, and I, like Paul, have had to learn to be content in any condition of life, and so have you, and I know your stories. And so Paul writes, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You ever get blessed so much you think, oh, I don't deserve this. Here's Peter. Because you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, I really didn't want to go out again. I was out all night. I really didn't want to do it just because Jesus said so, but I did. Now I'm blessed, and guess what? I know how unworthy I am. I have no right to this catch. I'm surprised he didn't throw it back. You ever watch those fishing shows? They don't keep the fish. They throw them back. I've been watching fishing shows, and it's like, how do you know you're not catching the same fish all the time? If I, if I threw in a 10-pounder, I'd throw the line right in and try to catch him again. It counts. Do you see where they're loading the fish with lead balls to make them weigh more? Do you see that? I mean, they get huge prizes for this. Yeah, I know, 30 grand. They get, yeah, they get new boats, too. But um, we're not really talking about fishing, are we? Peter fell down at his knees and said, I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. He knew he didn't deserve the catch. None of us deserves the catch. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. I hope you've had those times of astonishment at your blessing. I hope you know we go through this thing with the prayer requests every Sunday. And sometimes we forget that the prayer requests we made two Sundays ago have all been granted by God. And every hand should have gone up in the interim Sunday and said, let's bless the Lord and thank him for all the answers to prayer. And we... We always thank the Lord in a sort of general, generic sense, but sometimes we really ought to point out how speedy the Lord was in answering our request. Look at he just said, launch out, throw down your net, and there it was, full. The disciple is blessed with provision, and the provision is to assist him in the real catch. That's what it's for. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. See, this was a family business. They were cousins. I think they were cousins. I think Zebedee was Peter's uncle. But that's just me. I think that. If you read my book, you'll know I push that aspect. But um, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. Friends, there's something fearful about evangelism, let's face it. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now that doesn't mean they never were fishermen again. In fact, before the gospel ends, Peter says, I've had it with this. I'm going fishing. You know, the Lord was gone. A couple of people said they saw him. And he said, I'm going fishing. And a few disciples went with him up to the Sea of Galilee. They went back into Galilee. And Jesus, of course, reenacts this whole thing. And Peter sees them on the shore. And he says, it is the Lord. And he dives in the water, and for the first time, he beat John to the side of the Lord Jesus. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. We have a lot of things we can do, a lot of things we can say, a lot to share and to rejoice in with our friends. 
but we've been entrusted with special words and a special message for the word for the world rather to hear. We've been blessed with the gospel. It's a special message. It may be a long conversation, friends. It may be a simple invitation to worship. Sometimes our witnessing may become contentious. Sometimes we'll endure charges of hypocrisy, and sometimes the charges will be true. Don't be afraid to say guilty as charged, rather than, he called me a hypocrite. They may even be, some of the charges might even be obvious. And sometimes those charges will be right. Um, The apostle failed at all these things, and yet they forsook all and followed after him. Peter failed and continues to fail in the gospel chronology, right? They used all they were blessed with to become fishers of men. And friends, boy, did they ever become fishers of men. Once the real fishermen came, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, right? They went down to the streets. Thousands upon thousands each day through the preaching were saved and came into the kingdom. And so the Lord said, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. Father, teach us, O Lord, to be fishers of men. It is a time when it is so dearly needed, O Lord. Let the great fishermen, the Holy Spirit, come in among us and give us those words that we need to say in those moments, Father. Make us true fishers of men, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.